I'm Ben Felder with The Oklahoman. Joining me as always, my co-host, Justin Wingeter, Dale Denwalt. Gentlemen, good afternoon. It is uh, Thursday, and uh, we are out of the office. We are just across the street and about, what, 50 floors up? We're above the office. We are above the office here at the the top of the the Devon Energy Tower, a great view of the city around us. Uh, And we are here at the Lieutenant Governor's Young Professional Conference, and joining us, um, conveniently enough, is the Lieutenant Governor of Oklahoma, Lieutenant Governor Todd Lamb. Uh, Lieutenant Governor, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Ben, thanks. It's it's a pleasure to be with you on the podcast. This, This is my maiden voyage on the podcast so i appreciate you know i finally arrived you know i was trying to be hit be cool i want to be i want to be podcast worthy for some time so thanks guys for having me on and i thought since it's a lieutenant governor's young professional conference i kind of thought i should be here yeah it's convenient for you to be here and uh and a podcast goes probably along with a young professional theme um we want to talk to you uh you know you're obviously uh in in addition to serving as lieutenant governor running for governor we want to talk to you about that but first tell us about this conference uh uh, it's been going on for a few years, and, right. and this was launched under your administration. And just kind of tell us a little bit about the the goals behind it. Well, I don't want to build too much of the watch for you, but th- this was a, an idea that I had after doing quite a few college commencements. Um, you know, I've got a lot of roles and responsibilities as lieutenant governor. I think unofficially I may, I may be commencement speaker-in-chief. I don't know if anybody's given more the last several years than I have, but my message was always to these graduates, hey, congratulations, great job. Uh, And then I would always, toward the end, my conclusion would be, hey, if you're not from Oklahoma, I want you to remain here. Matter of fact, more importantly, if you're from Oklahoma and you're about to graduate, you're graduating today, please don't leave Oklahoma. Please stay here. Use your talents here. Use your skill sets here. Use your education here. Don't leave Oklahoma. And then kind of in a fatherly way, you know, we've got two teenagers at the house. I said, here's my advice. I said, this is, if you remain in Oklahoma, it's like, uh, real estate folks tell me this. Chip Carter's give me this advice. It's like buying the first house in a n- new neighborhood. If you remain, your value is going to go up because Oklahoma, I believe, is on the cusp of a renaissance. So that's a long prelude to say after doing some of these commencements throughout a year, year and a half, two years, I thought, you know what? We need to have a conference focused for these young professionals, either recent graduates or just those that are still young and mobile enough and might have a romanticized view of moving or living elsewhere, let's gather them statewide and tell them why to stay. And what we've done these last several years, we've brought in folks that were at one time young professional uh, that might have a little salt and pepper around the temple. Uh, men, of course, w- women always age better, right? But uh, the, the men that came in and, and the we've had women keynote and then panel breakouts. I don't want to get too far out here with this long answer, but that was the inception of the Young Professional Conference. We invite these men and women in that are professionals now and they remained. So they tell their story. Then they answer questions. And it's just been really successful. We took one year off because uh, just some, some conflicts that we had. Uh, that was last year. We're glad that we're back and I think stronger and better than ever. Yeah, and I think most uh, public officials would say part of their job is, is selling the state, but that seems to be a central part of the lieutenant governor's office. I mean, you're kind of the cheerleader in chief in a lot of ways, right? Uh, well, I, I have been, and if you look historically, just the, the lieutenant governor's office or lieutenant governors, and now my statement, what I'm about to make is not a critical statement, but some folks that are running for lieutenant governor now said, well, you know, the job of lieutenant governor is economic development and selling the state. Well, no, it's not. But that's what I've done for, for seven years. So if that means I've redefined this office in some way, uh, that's great because I love Oklahoma. I'm passionate about Oklahoma. And one of the mantras that I've shared and everybody on this podcast today, um, everybody's heard me say this, you know, this is OU Texas weekend. You know, we have this expectation to whoop Texas 
on Saturday. It doesn't matter what happened against Iowa State. We have an expectation to whoop Texas. You know, if, and if we beat Texas by 14 points, somebody might say, well, well, only 14? What happened? So with this Young Professional Conference, with the mantra of competing with Texas and something besides athletics, uh, let's keep our young professionals here, this creative class, uh, create opportunities and avenues for them to diversify our economy and really grow and prosper early in their career. Yeah. Is that, is that working, though? You know, We've had, uh, for instance, a prime example is uh, teachers who leave Oklahoma for Texas. And uh, I don't know if you saw Sean Sheehan's uh, blog post recently talking about um, you know, his budget there compared to here. Um, that's just one example. It's an anecdote. But you know, there, there's, uh, there, there seems to be somewhat of an exodus of Oklahomans to Texas. Um, you know, how, are, how are we faring? And um, is there anything that we're not doing now that we could? Oh, absolutely. No, we're not faring well. That's, that's one of the points in the conference. You know, this, this young professional conference uh, that I'm hosting and created, it's not the panacea. And it's still er- relatively early in its inception, uh, going on five, six years, something like that. So it's still very early. But to your point, Dale, no, Oklahoma's not doing near well enough. Absolutely not. And as lieutenant governor, I've had a front row seat to the current mess. You know, I've shared with others, you cannot get any closer to the action at the same time being further removed than being lieutenant governor. Trust me, I know. I mean, I have no stick. I have no carrot. I've never in the, been in the budget negotiations. I'm married to a classroom teacher, you know, and she actually switched jobs this past year. And she's taught in Tulsa Public, Oklahoma City Public. She now teaches in a rural school. She came home when she got her first paycheck. And we had a very, well, I was going to say discussion. I listened for a long time because uh, she was upset about teacher pay. And right. I said, honey, babe, remember, I'm, I'm with you. I'm passionate about how we invest in education and how we pay our teachers. So to your point, no, we're not doing near enough. And we're allowing our teachers, we're allowing, uh, well, our teachers or any other occupation, we're allowing folks to leave Oklahoma we don't want to keep anybody here because of, uh, you know, a ball and chain or, or you know, uh, they're tied down. We want people to remain because there's opportunity to live, prosper, raise a family, and do it comfortably and be successful. And Oklahoma can do much more. Let's talk about that. You're talking about your position and sometimes lacking the carrot and the stick. You're running for a position in which you would kind of get those powers a little a bit. Much running for governor. A bigger carrot and a bigger yeah. stick and bully pulpit. Um, you know, I want to ask you some specific questions about that. But uh, first, kind of assess, let's start with what's going on right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, the governor is is in the middle of these uh, budget negotiations. The, the stalemate is taking place with the legislature in the special session. Um, from your perspective, I mean, kind of assess what's going on. And, and you're running for a job. What would you do? I'm not asking you to necessarily be critical of Mary Fallon, uh, Governor Fallon, but what would, well, how do you envision yourself uh, as, as governor in these situations and trying to solve some of these major problems facing the state, primarily with the budget? Yeah, well, let's look at the process of special session first. I think the process of special session uh, it didn't work, and I don't think special session was called in an appropriate way. Special session should have been called after there was a deal already determined, afterwards. Because, and I said this before special session was called, because what would happen? This is what happened. Everybody got together, special session was convened, and then after a day or two, they adjourned to the call of the chair because there's no deal. Well, what's the point in calling everybody together before a deal is negotiated? You know, as a governor, use the carrot, use the stick, use the bully pulpit, mix all the metaphors. You use that as a very strong leader, and I'm a proven leader. You look at my Secret Service background, what I did in the state Senate, the stands I've taken as lieutenant governor, no previous lieutenant governors have done. I'm a proven conservative leader. You bring everybody in, bring legislative leaders in. Let's do this. 11 a.m. Bring them in at 11. You lock the small conference door in the, in the governor's office. Say, okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're not unlocking the door. 
We're not going to go to lunch. We're not calling in pizza till we got a deal. You do it at 11. Folks get a little hungry. You know how I know that? Because I, I could push through a lot of legislation when I was a majority floor leader, which is the COO of the state Senate, when I put up tough, hard bills at 11 a.m. And I announced before the bills came up, we're not breaking for lunch. We work through it. You know, I've got that experience. I got that understanding. So that's just one statement I have about special session. Now, generally speaking, the budget system in Oklahoma is extremely broken. I mean, Dale, I'm not sure if you te- testify because some might view that as an endorsement. That's not what I'm looking for. But you've seen it firsthand at the state capitol. Here's what we do every year. Every year we do this at the state capitol. The governor of Oklahoma is required to give a state of the state address day one. The purpose, the requirement is to give an executive budget. We take this budget seriously, right? It's printed, it goes to the print shop, it's bound, it's an inch and a half thick. There's a gold embossed seal on the top of it. It's a legit budget, right? No, it's not. It's not till one month later the Board of Equalization certifies how much money the legislature has to appropriate. So for one month, it's a scrimmage at the state capitol. We've all been to scrimmages. Scrimmages, there's a lot of activity and nothing matters. That's the first month of legislative session. So as governor, the first month of session under my leadership will be policy only for one month. The last three months, budget only. Right now, it's the last thing I'll say on, on the budget and the current state of affairs. Right now, we have five or six legislators negotiating the budget behind closed doors. Five or six legislators. Sometimes it's three or four. With about th- three months into session, three and a half months into session, then they open up the door, light is shed on the process there's one budget, so all the rest of the legislature, legislators are forced to vote on option A or, well, it's just option A. Under my leadership as governor, first month policy, last three months budget, now we'll have 149 legislators holding public hearings. How would the Oklahoma like that? Public hearings on unelected bureaucrats for three months on last year's budget, what they're requesting for this supplemental this year, and the next fiscal year. It would be millions of dollars in cost savings. You talk about, you know, bringing what's mostly a private process into the public, um, and I think a lot of people would appreciate that. Um, What we do know about the budget going on right now, the discussions of the debate or the lack of debate, I mean, we have two sides that are kind of entrenched, you know, the Republicans in the House and the Democrats. Um, You know, the the cigarette tax, the gross production tax, which Democrats want. Um, Specifically, when it comes to these measures, as governor in these rooms, um, you know, what position would you be taking? I mean, well, let's start with the cigarette tax. Is this something that you support? Is this good for Oklahoma? Uh, I mean, what would be your position as governor as a part of these negotiations? Well, what I'm not going to do I, I appreciate you asking i know you're probably asking this the question you just asked you can ask me about three different ways three, three different styles three different slants before we finish today because that's your job correct uh right uh but what i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go into the trap of uh being the money morning quarterback or take a position on, on every issue before a special session or the legislative session because again it's not wise for me to do that not i'm passing the buck and it's not that i'm afraid to take a position you look at my career i've taken a stand throughout my entire career but with no carrot no stick for me to say i'm yes i'm no on an issue when I'm not even in the room, I'm not even in the room. So that's that's also why I don't endorse pieces of legislation. A legislator will come to me and say, "Hey, I, I've, I've, uh, I'm authoring Senate Bill 123, and Senate Bill 123 is making a statement that Oklahomans like vanilla ice cream." Well, I'm not going to take a position on that because by the time Senate Bill 123 gets through the process, you know, it's outlawing vanilla ice cream and it's a favor of strawberry. You know what I mean? I mean. The process and policy and issues change so much dur- during the process. Now, I will tell you this. What I'm at, you're waiting to ask me a question. I know you're going no, right. to come back a different <laughs> And Mike's getting closer and closer to you. Just on taxes generally, just on taxes generally, I'm opposed to raising taxes. It's not against the law to pay more than you owe. You know why folks don't do it? They think they're paying enough. I mean, does anybody here know anybody that says, brags about the fact or tweets about the fact that they pay more in taxes than they owe? 
No, people think they're paying enough. So last year, the state dealt with $878 million less than the previous year. $878 million. So then there's a proposal to tax babysitters, to tax barbers. So the fiscal position of Oklahoma is that we're going to tax the babysitter. You know, the 14-year-old girl that's coming over to babysit your kids when you take your wife out to dinner, your wife takes you to dinner. We're going to tax him or her who's babysitting. I mean, that, that was, it was just silly and ludicrous. So $878 million less. Here's how concerned the state, the state government was last year with $878 million less revenue. State government pushed out the door $6.7 billion in sales tax exemptions alone. You, and the Oklahoma's reported on this. You add up all the exemptions, all the credits, all the incentives, it comes to just under $10 billion. That's not one time. That's a reoccurring. That's annual. That's every year. So nobody's convinced me yet we have a serious revenue problem. I'm convinced having a front row seat, again, with no authority or, or power as lieutenant governor, we've got a management problem. If we're concerned about $878 million less, why are we pushing out billions, billions of dollars of taxpayer money? But you're talking about these tax credits, tax exemptions, rebates, whichever form it takes. We're sitting here at a Young Professionals Conference where you're encouraging people to stay in Oklahoma. They stay in Oklahoma if there's a place to work and business comes to Oklahoma. I've heard this mantra for years, if they have the right tax incentives. Um, that seems like some sort of arcane circle um, uh, uh how do you how do you balance that? You know, you're, you're talking about, you know, we have so much in in tax uh, incentives going out the door, right. but well, we're it, trying to attract people to Oklahoma. Yeah. And it's keep, not counterintuitive, and it's not juxtaposed. I understand your, your question, but I, I'd push back and say it's not juxtaposed or counterintuitive or or uh, anything like that. Every, every incentive package should be reviewed in Oklahoma through this stringent lens of a cost-benefit analysis. Is this incentive, is this credit, is this exemption providing jobs, significant jobs in Oklahoma? Is it, if it's not creating jobs, is it achieving its purpose in its creation? Is it helping Oklahoma? Part of the challenge we have with these incentives, there, there is no object stated in the statutory incentive. If you look at the incentives, there are no objects stated. So 20 years later, after, or 40 years later, after the legislature authors an incentive, there's a new legislature, a new governor. How do we know the incentive is even meeting its objective? Furthermore, there's no sunset date in these incentives. Furthermore, the last part, a three-legged stool, there's no financial ceiling on these incentives. So you create an incentive, and it's Katie barred the door. There's just millions upon billions, M and B, going out the door. So it's not counterintuitive on saying, hey, young professionals, we want you to stay you know, what was the incentive on, on uh, when Oklahoma was settled? Either through forced relocation, the tragic forced relocation of our Native Americans, the land runs, indigenous Native Americans before anybody. They weren't incentivized. Well, I mean, one group was actually forced. My point is they, they stood, they remained here because once they were here, well, however they arrived, once they were here, Oklahoma is a good place to live. You can, you can raise a family in Oklahoma. And the, day, the last thing I'll say about the incentives, unless somebody comes back at me uh, on another issue, but any company, any company that is lured to Oklahoma with incentives alone, with only incentives, that exact same company can be lured away from Oklahoma with incentives.
Yeah. So, you, I mean, I know you, you know, going back, you, you'd said you, you're not going to take a position on, on specific proposals. Okay, fair enough. And and I imagine, so, you know. I told I, you you come so, back. I was well, prophetic. Okay. You came back at me. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. we're, time's limited. Go, I mean, I, I'm going to imagine that you're, there's not a there's not one out there that you are. But let me ask you this. But, but you did kind of clarify a position a little bit. You're saying that you don't believe that there is a need to raise taxes. That right now, I mean, the, the, the kind of the mantra, you know, that we have a revenue problem versus a spending problem. I mean, you see it as a spending problem. So, and I ask you this because you know, Governor Fallon has said, you know, hey, I'm not going to approve a budget out of the special session that makes cuts. Um, and, and we'll see what that ends up looking like. Um, my first two-part question. First question, is, is that or is that a responsible move to take? As a governor, would that be a position you take? Hey, we don't need to make any more cuts to, to services. Um, but two, are, is your case that um, we can find that money in, in, other, in other ways besides raising taxes, whether it be cigarette tax, gross production tax, or what it might be on the table? I don't know why, as go- well, let me answer this way. As governor of Oklahoma, I would never paint myself in a corner and saying, we're, n- we're not going to accept any more cuts. But, well, I don't know why you would do that. Because what if an agency head or director, as some have told me privately, some have told me privately, there's room for more cutting. That there, there are a few more things that we could do to streamline either administrative services or uh, use the taxpayer money more wisely. So to put yourself, uh, put yourself or the legislature in a box and say this is definitely a non-starter for additional cuts or streamlining a process, for example, I, I, I wouldn't do that as governor. So you would say that if you believe that the state is not in a position to be able to handle more cuts. I mean, yes, handle more cuts, but that it not be would not be wise for the state, education, healthcare, whatever it may be. You believe that there are some ways where agencies can continue to be cut. Based on what I, the conversation I've had with agency heads and directors, absolutely. You know, on the and the opposite side of that coin is this: I'm also never a favor of across the board cuts, where everybody gets a five percent cut. Everybody gets a 5% raise. Everybody gets a 12% cut, mandatory 7.5%. Why? Because then you're saying every agency and department has equal value. That's not true. Not every agency and department in the state of Oklahoma has equal value. So there shouldn't be across-the-board cuts either. Are you okay with three health agencies taking all of the cuts then? As it currently stands? Well, that that's now you're talking about more specifically on special session. Well, the, the cigarette cessation fee was passed for that purpose. So the three agencies that you're referring to, the, referring to those are the three agencies that has primary focus during special session. So the, the I push back on the premise a little bit. Uh, you're asking me specifically on special session. No, I don't want the three agencies to have draconian cuts where services aren't provided because when I was in the state Senate, uh, as governor, this would be my same conviction, uh, as, a, as a dad – as a father, I want to make sure that Oklahoma provides core services to our citizens. I mean, now we can have a discussion on what those core services are, but the core services should be funded in Oklahoma. And so, and we're, and we're kind of, I know we're, we're short on time with you, so uh, just real, I'm, real, I'm real quick. The, I'm loving the conversation. <laughs> well, I, I think know. you're supposed to be speaking, though, two minutes ago. So um, <laughs> we want to be mindful of your time, um, although it's not going to start without you. It is your conference, right? Um, you know, you look at those core services, so let's talk about some of those. I mean, as governor, would you envision, you know, during your term, let's start with education, m- more money for education? Is this, is that, when you look at that, do you feel like schools are underfunded? I mean, you know, you know, some would say, "Hey, it's not they have enough money; it's just not being spent in the correct way." Let's start with education, Department of Education. As governor, would you see that as an agency that needs uh, an increase in investment? As governor, my priority in education would be twofold: first, first, an investment in our teachers. 
I'm subjective. My wife's a fifth grade teacher, all right? She's taught Tulsa Public, Oklahoma City Public. I mentioned earlier she's at a rural school now. Um, but I was reading that. I'm trying to talk and read at the same time. <laughs> Thank you, Chip Carter. Uh, so my investment, my priority would be a teacher pay raise, teacher pay raise, and then making sure we get as much money as possible inside the classroom. Because what do we hear outside of teacher pay raise? We hear well, the textbooks are old. The textbooks are outdated. Uh, you know, maybe I'm just dating myself. You all probably, or maybe are, some of you are past the chalkboard era. Uh, but, you know, at once I said, we got to make sure we have chalkboards. Chalkboards, we need smart boards, you know, in schools all across Oklahoma. I, I was introduced to smart boards about five years ago. So whatever the technology is that helps advancing uh, academic success, teacher pay, and then money inside the classroom where our students see it. You know, that, those are our two most important elements in education, the student and the teacher. They're inside the classroom. Investment in the classroom. You know, that's what I hear from my wife and her colleagues. Well, we, uh, the, the note that we were just given, we don't have time to go through every state agency, and I don't have time to ask you anymore if you approve a certain uh, Have I tax. passed, though? Can I yeah. podcast again? I want to podcast again. Can, can I be on yeah. your podcast again? Yeah. Yeah, can I invite myself over? Yeah, we'd have, you, we'd have you on, especially if we could get some more time, and um, give me a chance to ask you a few more questions that I, I, I know you it. don't want to answer. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I, 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 well, I answered I, everything. Maybe not the way no. you wanted me to answer it, but I answered everything. But I love the give and take. I love the exchange. That's one of the reasons I've gone to every county every year. I've had a town hall meeting multiple times in every county I, last thing i'll say you know i was in Harmon county two weeks ago hollis america i had a i had a town hall meeting in a cell barn in hollis that's my fourth town hall meeting in that cell barn I, so I, I love the exchange i love the q a uh, and i love learning from others which, questions. which county is the hardest for you like which which county do you go to and you're like Oh, I'm going to get all these questions again. Dale, come on. You think I'm going to say that out loud? Cher- uh, is it Cherokee County? <laughs> Cherokee? No. Honestly, there's not a county I dread going to. I just mentioned Harmon. I love going to Harmon because nobody goes to Harmon County. Nobody. And I just did a panhandle swing uh, Monday and Tuesday this week. I did lunch, uh, excuse me, breakfast in Laverne, lunch in Boy City, and dinner in Guymon. Then I did breakfast in Beaver the next day and lunch in Shattuck, uh, you know, s- south of, uh, south of La- Laverne. But here's my point. I couldn't wait to get back out to the Panhandle. I was there in July. That's the second time I've been there this, this year. And when I was in Boy City, it was 42 degrees in Boy City. It snowed that night. But somebody said to me in Boy City, hey, you know what? I appreciate you coming out here because nobody else does. I, I really enjoy There's not a county. There's not a county I dread to go to or I'm worried about the questions, worried about the issues because I've got friends all over the state and, and I enjoy seeing them when I travel around. It's a yeah. good politician answer right there. Yeah, well, uh, I'll travel around the state. That's, uh, hey, polygraph that's, that's, me, I'll pass. It's true. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Lieutenant Governor Todd Land, we appreciate your time uh, and uh, for, for allowing us to come and visit with you here at, uh, at your Young Professionals Conference. Um, and, uh, yeah, good luck to you on, on the rest of the trail. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. Great to be with you. Well, we're going to take a quick break on the Political State Podcast, and uh, the three of us will be back after the short break. All right, welcome back to the Political State Podcast from the Oklahoman with Dale and Justin. I'm Ben. And uh, gentlemen, an interview with uh, Lieutenant Governor Todd Lamb, also a candidate for governor. I'm not sure that there was any breaking news out of that interview. Um, but uh, you know, the thing that I was interested in the most was talking to him about his positions on, on various tax increase proposals, because that is the news of the day right out of the Capitol. Um, you know, he didn't take a position, although he kind of did. I mean, this is an anti-tax uh, candidate for governor, correct? Yeah. 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 And, and also somewhat surprising or somewhat revealing is is uh, maybe his idea to help raise revenue for the state. Uh, and that's uh, eliminating some 
uh, or at least reviewing some tax incentives. He didn't yeah. he didn't say exactly which ones that he would get rid of or which he thinks are bloated, but um, it it's certainly some it's certainly something that's been picking up speed at the state capitol over the last few years is that there's too much money going out the door in tax incentives. Yeah, and it's nothing new to hear a Oklahoma politician, uh, especially a Republican politician, say, listen, we don't even know, like, we need to get a better handle of how we're spending our money, we need to study the budget more. That's nothing new. What was maybe a little different, and I'm not comparing him necessarily to the other gubernatorial candidates, but just in past years, is, I mean, you know, he, he expressed that he had a specific plan on how to go about doing it. Um, I mean, I feel, I feel like we've heard uh, Governor Fallon talk about, hey, we need to get a better handle, our budget is broken, we need to figure it out. Um, but it seems like we're always saying that every year. It, you know, uh, Lieutenant Governor Lamb expressed at least a desire to uh, put that process in motion in, in year one for him. Yeah, I, I don't know how easy it's going to be, though. Yeah. There, there is some benefit to having to, to writing a budget behind closed doors and then presenting it as really the only option uh, because you can do that without influence of lobbyists um, uh, for the most part. And um, the, the, the more you bring this nego- negotiation process out in the open, um, the, I, I think the more difficult, so to speak, it's going to be um, to, to get something done quickly or um, without a lot of horse trading. Yeah. And of course, you know, as a journalist, I mean, I think we all would agree, like having th- having a process out in the open, I mean, Absol- we would appreciate I would love it. If they had a budget hearing, <laughs> yes. you know, everyone was there, would love to go to it. But there are, you know, you talk about the advantage of, of meeting behind closed doors. Um, there's also kind of the advantage. Um, I think when you have a small group meeting behind closed doors, this isn't the case, but maybe when you can enlarge that circle a little bit, I mean, it gives people the chance to have conversations and kind of speak frankly about things that they know, you know, they're, they're kicking the tires on ideas. Right. I remember reading a story about, um, I think it was, Ar- there's a coach in Arkansas that goes, um, uh, goes goes on goes forward on fourth down. A high school coach goes for every play, every play, mm-hmm. and he's won numerous state titles. I, I think this is right, or maybe it's going for two point conversions every time. I'm not sure, but he's had NFL coaches come visit him, <laughs> but they swear him to secrecy that they're actually there. They're interested to hear about the idea, but they know that if it was ever reported back, you know, that the coach of the Green Bay Packers is meeting with a high school coach about going forward on fourth down every, you know, he'd be crucified. And so I think there's some advantage sometimes to meeting behind closed doors to be able to say, hey, what about the tax on this? And it's nothing that that, that lawmaker necessarily wants to be branded with and it's just an idea that they're floating around out there but uh, mm-hmm. but you're right now i would be all for the, the open process i'm not sure i buy uh, the lieutenant governor's argument that if fallon had waited to call the special session we would be in better shape i don't know why meeting outside of a special session would be any better than meeting as they are right now during a special session don't you have a stalemate either way yeah sure you do uh, but governor fallon's decision i think put pressure on the legislature uh, if if we had done it the you know Todd Lamb's way, uh, people would be wondering, waiting for Mary Fallon to call special session, and uh, uh, I think a, a little bit more of the uh, of the pressure would be on her to actually bring people back to the Capitol, and it, 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 it that that may have figured into her decision to go ahead and call people back, uh, but also. Um, you, you can't wait too long, you know. Um, we're we're getting, we're we're several months already into this fiscal year. Each week week that you wait, that two hundred and fifteen million dollars gets a little bit bigger in uh, the remaining spending authority that these agencies have. I thought a good point you did make uh, in regards to strategy from the governor is uh, that she has drawn this line in the sand on not accepting any budget cuts, uh, or even threatening to veto budget cuts. Uh, when you have negotiations that have barely gotten started that are, uh, 
are going to continue for many more weeks, uh, back when she made that declaration, you are drawing a line in the sand, which you either cross and then look like you flip-flopped, or you don't cross, in which case you're tying the legislature's hands. And uh, if you're just starting negotiations, you may not want to draw some of those hard lines. Well, yeah, you know, that's a good point. And I think and I think one of the things that just hearing um, you know, Lamb kind of critique Fallon on this. First off, if we did it the Todd Lamb way, we'd still be waiting for lunch, it sounds like. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, he seemed to kind of be, been critical of Governor Fallon for kind of putting herself in these corners. Like saying, why would you, like, why would you put your cards on the table? Why would you draw a line in the sand? Why would you call a special session when you don't have a deal? Why would you, I mean, there seems to be, I mean, on one hand, you know, he's advocating for a more open process, but on the other hand, he's, and I don't mean necessarily secretive in a critical way, but like, why are you wanting to reveal all this information? Like, you have have some power and to him it's giving it away when you kind of put those um you know lines in the sand you, you lose some negotiating here now governor fallon if her position is i don't want cuts i mean then right that's what she's saying um i also feel like you know him saying you know that maybe she jumped too soon to call the special session uh, maybe but she didn't jump as quick as she could have. I mean, she right. said, hey, I'm going to call a special session. And then time went by. I felt like she finally put a date on it because she's like, we're not getting anywhere. We have to do something. And I think you're right, to, Dale, to say, um, you know, maybe this was a way to put a little bit more pressure on the legislature. I think it did, but not obviously not enough pressure to get something done. And what's wrong with that? I mean, it is a legislature's responsibility. They do write bills and then they do pass bills. Send it to the governor. Obviously, the governor has a role in these negotiations, but I see nothing wrong with getting that clock moving, especially if you just uh, adjourn to a call of the chair so you're not spending the money. I don't see anything wrong with that early call. Uh, I do see something wrong with drawing a line in the sand. I think that's a poor strategic decision by the governor. On, on, I'm, I'm not going to accept any cuts. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, and, and Lieutenant Governor Lamb, you know, he makes the point to say, why would you not? you know, say that you're going to take any cuts because there could be a, an ad, an advantageous cut. Yeah. Now, I feel like when she's saying I'm not going to accept any more cuts, her saying, I'm not going to cut education. I'm not going to cut health care. I'm not going to cut the Department of Corrections. I would say that if some agency like the, I don't know, throw out some obscure agency came along. I don't want to pick on the peanut commission, <laughs> but maybe the peanut commission. <laughs> if the, if the, I don't know anything about the peanut commission, but if the peanut commission said we have too many peanut commissioners and Fallon's like, oh, okay, I will accept cuts to the peanut commission. I don't think Oklahomans are going to be up in arms and say, you lied. You said you weren't going to take any more cuts. I mean, I think it's very clear what she's talking about here. Um, I think I'm going to get a, a peanut yeah. gift, gift bag. Our listeners on that. the commission, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry, guys. Um, uh, yeah, I, I know nothing about the Phoenix Commission. I don't know what to expect, <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So you're but you are right that it does kind of um, it does kind of you know put herself in a in a corner. But at the same time, I don't know that you know what Lamb had said that it kind of sets her up for you know if one of those kind of cuts came along. I don't I yeah. don't think that she I think she would jump at it. And you know what? She may very well approve a budget with cuts. She's done it before after saying you know maybe not in as stark terms, but you know she's essentially used the last couple state of the state addresses to say I don't want any more cuts. And, uh, and honestly, then she's approved a budget with cuts. Honestly, at this point, um, I think if if she were to receive a budget with uh, with cuts in it then that budget would have been created by eliminating some tax incentives, uh, moving some money around, spreading out the cuts, so to speak, using one-time money. All of that can be done with 51 votes, right? And if the governor vetoes that budget, all the Republicans have to do is gather, I think, like 66, 67 of their members, it, which yeah. they have. They would just have to get most of their members uh, voting for it. 
Yeah. Did you get a sense in, in, I mean, we talk about the difference in strategy that Lieutenant Governor Lamb said that he would play. I mean, he said, I don't want to second guess people while they're doing it, but he, you know, he offered his, you know, right. his take on how he would do things differently. You think we'd be anywhere different right now? It's hard to say. I think he, he might take a, a bit more sort of publicly proactive role. Um, I, I don't think Governor Fallon is just, just kind of sitting on the sidelines, but um, I think I think Todd Lamb would be a little bit more public in using that bully pulpit. One of the things that, that Governor Fallon, um, that, that I understand about Governor Fallon from covering her administration these years, is that um, she... She she hasn't always taken the um, the opportunity to take a stand as public a public stand as governor on something um, and sort of draw that line. Um, she's been um, uh, conciliatory a lot of times on many mm. things and uh, offering to be maybe a, a mediator or go between if there are two warring factions in the capital. Um, and that's that's her leadership style. Uh, and she's done it fairly successfully for the last seven years. Uh, but I think Todd Lamb would be somewhat different. Yeah. I mean, her line in the sand of not wanting to accept a budget with cuts, I mean, that was probably the most forceful yeah. I've seen her during her. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, she's issued some vetoes and stuff on some controversial issues, but yeah. um, but that was probably the more for, most forceful I've seen her in terms of, you know, using that analogy, banging, banging yeah. the bully pulpit. And wow. You know, Lamb, I, I think, uh, you know, coming into this election, um, you know, it's hard to, yeah, I don't know, you know, it's not our job to necessarily say who is, who's a front runner and all those kind of things. But, I, I you know, Lamb had been rumored to run, for, not even just rumored, I mean, it had been open that he was going to run for a long time. Um, you know, we knew that he was a candidate even before he officially said he was a candidate. Um was there anything, I mean, he had kind of what you expect an Oklahoma conservative front runner candidate. I mean, he seems to embody that. I mean, you know, I'm not for tax increases. You know, I want to focus on, on economic development and businesses. I mean, this is kind of the the platform that you would expect from um, the quote unquote front runner, especially coming from uh, from the Republican Party. Yeah, isn't it? it's, it's very traditional, don't you think? Uh, and uh, what what we have to understand, though, is this is a... Uh, this last year, especially in politics, has been very untraditional. And if someone like Gary Richardson's message can take hold, um, you know, Todd Lamb could be in trouble. But, but you know, <laughs> um, the lieutenant governor is is a really good politician, um, and he's done a good job um, letting people know who he is all across the state. He said he's visited seventy seven all seventy seven counties every year um that is going to be beneficial for him when people look at their ballot and they say oh yeah todd lamb's been here i know that name he seems like a like a nice guy or whatever with whatever they think of him um and 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 that alone could earn him some votes oh yeah definitely well and you're right i mean to talk about the traditional versus the non-traditional i mean that is kind of the republican primary right now right yep. uh, um and that is american politics right now i mean we are that's what things are setting up to be is is the uh um the untraditional little guy so to speak has uh, maybe got a little bit more motivation uh behind them this year um but yeah that will that will be interesting and i think um uh, is that going to force, though, do you feel like this race to move to the right? I mean, you talk about someone like Richardson, who is a deeply anti-tax um, 
you know, candidate wants to cut taxes. I mean, I didn't hear Lamb talking much about cutting taxes, although I'm sure he would he would generally support that idea in theory. Um, you know, but Richardson saying like, not only do we need we don't need more taxes, we need to cut what we have. That's we're gonna, we're going to cut our way out of the problem. I mean, I, it'll be interesting to see as we get closer to the primary how much that shapes the race. Does it move people like Lamb and Cornette more to the right on these issues? Yeah, I, I think it could, and and we we saw an example of um, of, of another sort of. Uh, 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 perspective in this race is that Todd Lamb is an insider. He he not no, not only did he said that there can be more to cut, he said that um, that agency heads have personally told him that there can be more to cut. Um, I, I should have I, asked I him what agency head that was. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. I knew the answer. To that. I, I don't. I don't know <laughs> I what. Going to get one. <laughs> I, I don't know what that's telegraphing. If it's telegraphing anything. Uh, other than, um, you know, Todd Lamb knows a lot of people in state government who are willing to confide in him that their agency can uh, weather um, a, uh, a budget cut. Well, and it, it, that for him right now, his his platform is I am the insider outsider. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not involved in the special session right now. I'm not involved in these negotiations. I'm not governor right now. Um, here's how I would do it differently. I'm an outsider in this stance, but I'm also an insider because I've I've been in those rooms before. I still, you know, technically work at the Capitol. Um, you know, agency heads are confiding in me. I mean, so it really is that kind of uh, the platform is uh, that he's kind of pushing forward is kind of that best of both worlds, right? It's, it's a fine point. line if you can do it. If you can do it, it's great because, yeah, you get best of both worlds. Uh or you're somewhere in the middle and neither side cares for you too much. You, it's a fine line to walk. But it is. He seems willing to walk for it. trying it. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I, I wanted to, I wanted to touch on, and, and I wish I had more time with him to ask him this question, but he said that there, there, uh, there are agencies who know that they can cut more. Um, isn't that the responsibility of, of, uh, not only the agency head, let's go past that, but the actual board or commission that oversees that agency, to to sort of hold that 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 agency the agency staff accountable, uh, particularly whatever chief chief of the agency there is, hold them accountable. And if there are cuts to be made, um, I mean, shouldn't the board be telling the uh, the director, you've got to make these cuts. You have to bite the bullet on this. Yeah, I, th- I think you're exactly right. That's a great point. Sorry, I'm going to cut you off there, Jesse. Yeah, it was just something Tom Coburn was telling me last week when I sat down with him, and something him and uh, former Governor Keating have been really been harking on that the idea that you shouldn't raise taxes until you've gone through every agency and ask them where you can cut and what a cut would mean to them, so the people can see what that would mean. And ideally, of course, in their mind, you would find waste and you would just start cutting away the waste, but. Yeah. Well, and, but yeah, I, one of my biggest, you know, pet peeves is that when you see, you know, public officials will say, um, we have waste. We need to figure out where the waste is or we don't know how much money we're spending on this or we don't have a handle on the budget. So my response is, we'll go get a handle on it then. <laughs> I mean, but you're right. You have these you have these agencies, these boards that it's their job. I mean, let's look at the Department of Education. I mean, something I cover closely. I mean, a, a board that's appointed by the governor, right. um, you know, so her people in there that are overseeing it um, coming into this session, the regular session, the talk was that we don't know where money's going. Well, they had these budget hearings, these public budget hearings. The Department of Education came out and outlined, here's where we feel like we need where we need money and what we think our budget should be. Um, you know, and then you during the session say, well, we don't really have a good handle of what the student aid formula looks like. So we're going to put together a task force, which is great. At least they're doing it to where we can say, what did you figure out after having specific meetings? But guess what? That information is usually just a click away. And I, I guess that's kind of the thing that it's easy to say that to the public to say, you know, we need to get a handle on our spending. Um, but I feel like we 
we do, I'm, I'm not saying we have a handle in the sense that we're spending our money wisely or correctly all the time, but we do have a handle. I mean, those, those facts and figures exist. Those numbers exist. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a process for putting together that budget. So I think you're right to say, um, you know, it's one thing to criticize how agencies are spending their money, but the state runs those agencies. Yeah. Our elected and, officials still and, run those agencies. Yeah, exactly. And, and I would have to, I would have to double check, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that the, the governor now has the authority to, uh, to uh, basically fire uh, uh, board members and commissioners that 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 he or she, whoever's in the governor's office, appointed. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure that's law now, and um, I, I guess maybe we'll see Todd Lamb appointing a bunch of people who aren't afraid to tell a director find some cuts. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that would be, I mean, we those who are in charge. I mean, it's hard to continue to say this is what we I think we should be doing when you're in charge you're actually hold accountable like then why aren't you doing it mm-hmm. and so uh, for a lot of candidates that's the thing you have to look at it's like well they're not in charge right now you know how, how would they do it um, but uh, but you're right it's kind of a fine line to walk um, and uh, Lieutenant Governor Lamb is uh, he's taking on that line so we'll, we'll, we'll see we'll see how it goes and get out around the state which is right now I think is kind of the it's kind of what you do as a candidate right now right now it's about name recognition getting out there meeting in groups meeting in barns meeting in you know the top of the Devon Tower those kind of <laughs> things um, we'll start to see those debates and forums come as we get closer and, and that's where mm-hmm. I think we'll start to see that policy policy positions be shaped and is this race going to move to the right is going to move to the left for Democrats how, how are things going to shape, shape out but that's kind of where we're at right now in the the campaign. We're still a year away, though. I can't believe it. Less than a year for the primaries, but a, right, but right. a, a year away for, for the general election. Um, and with that said, we will have, um, we'll do our best to have other candidates on here. We've had Inman on before. So before we start getting some nasty emails, why no Democrat candidate? Inman <laughs> was on this summer um, with us, and I'm sure we'll talk to him and the other Democratic uh, candidates again. There are just so many of them. There are yeah. quite a bit. I We have, I don't know how many weeks we have before the primary. Are there, there probably could be a candidate per week, it feels like. <laughs> right now. Probably could. And there's more entering every day. It feels like uh, just this week. Who? Uh, well, Ke- Kevin Stitt. Formally had already announced. An, formally announced. Um, tweeted out some promoted tweets. Were you? Were, did you see these? I didn't kind of see interest. those. He, he pronounced his, his announcement that he is he was running, um, and then a anti-abortion, and then a stand for the pledge uh, right. tweet. So really, kind of capitalizing on the yeah. uh, social conservative issues of the day. Which I guess is what you do when you're running for the Republican primary in Oklahoma. I guess so. Well, hey, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Political State Podcast coming to you high above um, the <laughs> streets of Oklahoma at the top of the Devon Tower. We often talk about the tower across the street and yeah. how, uh, the decisions that take place. And before we leave, I have to look and see if I can see my house from here. I bet you can. Like I told you before, I mean, I've seen it from Okarchi before, so I, I imagine you can. Justin, this is your first trip up to the top, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's a lovely view. I think I can see my house on 30th Street. It's not that far away, so <laughs> I know I can see the tower from my house. So it makes it sense. You should work in reverse. Should yes. work in re- it should work in reverse. So, well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Political State Podcast. This episode and all others you can find on your favorite podcasting app. We're also on iTunes, NewsOK.com. Thanks for joining us this week with Dale and Justin. I'm Ben with the Oklahoman, and we'll be back for another episode next week. 